trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today. I am going to make it worth your while. I have a special guest I'd like to introduce you to. His name is Caleb France, and he is the host of Profiles in Liberty podcast. And Caleb, I know you probably uh, you probably wear a few more hats than just that. Uh, before we talk about your podcast, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for having me, Brian. This is uh, something I've, I've been looking forward to, and uh, I'm excited to be here. Um, as you introduced, uh, I my name is Caleb Franz. I've been in the Liberty space for for quite a few years now, and uh, I've been uh, I've been mostly working on uh, communication uh, and and trying to find the best way to amplify our our voices and our messaging. Um, one of the most recent ways that I did this is on my old show with, um, with, um, the Liberty and I ran that for about four years. And as we were discussing, uh, uh, before, uh, before we, we went live here, then, um, I, I stopped it about in March of last year, right before all the COVID, uh, insanity hit. And um, I had been kind of toying with the idea of bringing it back and revamping it and and uh, making it like a 2.0 or, or 3.0 or, you know, however many uh, reiterations it's, it's had. And something just wasn't really sticking right. I felt like, you know, there's obviously a lot of podcasts in the in the Liberty sphere. And uh, I, I wanted to do something that was special, something that people would really appreciate not to say that nothing I did on, on the Liberty was, was special because uh, I, I firmly believe that it was. Um, but I just felt like it, it was time to close that chapter. And one of the, one of the, uh, the big things that, that really stuck out uh, during, during that program that really got, uh, was, you know, really popular and, and got a lot of downloads and, and some of my personal favorite episodes were the uh, episodes I did that were history centric and story centric. Um, and I decided a few months ago that that was going to be the, the direction that I was going to take this new program, whatever it was going to be at the time. I didn't uh, know what that would be. Uh, and uh, I, I spoke with uh, Chris, Chris Spangle. He's, he's the head honcho over at We Are Libertarians. Uh, and, and we kind of worked together and, and, and talked it out. And uh, we agreed that this was something that we needed to do. Um, so we, uh, we agreed that uh, the program would be called Profiles in Liberty, which is uh, going to be debuting on July 1st. And uh, I am very excited for some of these stories that I have in store for, for you as an audience. You know, somebody said once that uh, the world is ruled by those who tell the stories. So mm -hmm. I think we really need somebody like you <laughs> telling the stories, particularly as it pertains to liberty, because, um, you know, in, in the in the seats of power or at least the, the, the power centers, I just have this hunch. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like liberty's kind of gone out of fashion. So I'm grateful there are people like you who are, you know, lifting that torch aloft and and telling the stories. 
What are you going to cover? So your debut episode is tomorrow. Uh, can you give us a sneak preview of, of what you'll be talking about? Absolutely. And, and, and just to, to backpedal just a little bit on what you just said there, that, that is kind of the idea that, uh, that gave birth to why I wanted to go down uh, this rabbit hole is because I am, I am very concerned with the way that history is being taught in, in schools and in culture. Um, and, and most importantly, uh, I, I don't believe that we really have uh, heroes the way that that we need them to be now. You know, we're we're constantly trying to cancel each other out, and we're trying to one up each other and say like, "Oh, this guy that you really like is actually this terrible person." And instead of instead of amplifying your own guy, in reality, all you're doing is is just eliminating all the heroes in American history that we have all had to look up to. Now, I don't I don't you know like to hero worship, so to speak. I I wrote um, I wrote an article uh, a, a few months ago for Free the People about the difference between um, heroism and, 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 and propping up our heroes versus idolatry. And I think a lot of people get those, those two things mixed up. Whereas obviously, um, idolizing people is, is very unhealthy, but, but finding those heroes and, and imitating them and, and finding where they stumbled and, and seeing how they got back up. That's something that's really important and something to be, to be admired by. Um, and, and those are a lot of the stories that, that I wanted to tell. So that is kind of the basis of, of Profiles in Liberty is that um, each episode I pick a, a particular hero of liberty who didn't always make the right decisions. They, they were you know fallible. They, they were human. Um, but the, the drive that they had, the, the thing that caused them to get back up the thing that that caused them to keep going was in the name of liberty and that no matter how many times they stumbled or messed up that was always their move forward you you um, just touched on something that i, I want to come back to real quick here you yeah, absolutely. don't have to be perfect to support yes, exactly. and to move or advance the cause of liberty and and i think we have some very unrealistic standards today that that suppose well you know these guys who came before us were so wrong and everything and, you know they should have known what what we know and i think uh, see, right, we're very quick to put our modern standards on on all of history and that really strips away sort of the context of of the brilliance of, of how they came to their, to these conclusions on Liberty in their own time. Um, when a lot of times, you know, Liberty is, is, is not the default in, in civilizations. It's, it's, it's often, uh, quite the opposite. Um, so whenever you have these people who are not only, uh, who not only came to these conclusions, but also are willing to stand up and speak out on these issues, regardless of how close they are to, uh, where we are today, we have the benefit of hindsight, but, uh, regardless of how close they are, I think that's something that's worthy of praise and something that, that we should, we should look back and celebrate, uh, at and, and, you know, make, uh, make those corrections where needed, but, but we should, we should know those stories and we should, uh, know those heroes. Caleb, as you are, you know, researching and studying these stories behind these profiles in Liberty, um, I'd like to get your impression. 
you know, the, the people who were, were living through times, you know, when slavery existed or the, the mm-hmm. continent was being settled, the Native Americans, you know, uh, were being pushed off of, of their traditional lands and so forth. I know there's a tendency to ascribe, oh, it was just pure malevolence that was was driving everything that happened. But I'm curious, do you get a better sense for uh, for the people who were part of, of you know, uh, the cultures that, that, you know, made mistakes, but also made some great advances? What's your impression? I mean, do, do we give them too much slack or were they doing the best they could in the world in which they'd been born? Yeah, so I want to preface this by saying, like, I I, I don't want to carry anyone's water. You know, I, I if if they were really like these malicious kind of people, and and that is actually the case, uh, no matter how they've been taught, you know, in the decades prior, I I want to set that record straight. I, I don't want to carry anyone's water if if they really were these you know bad evil people. What I find is that a lot of those individuals that's that's not actually the case. Um, and, and the instance that I am drawing to, this is a season-based show. So um, the, the first season starts tomorrow on July 4th and will uh, go on for eight weeks uh, with eight episodes um, every Thursday. And for this season, each season will have a theme. For this season, we're touching on the signers of the Declaration of Independence, which is very uh, thematic to obviously the July 4th weekend and everything. Um, and uh, I, I spe- yeah, go ahead. No, we just got we got a minute here before we go to break, but finish that thought for us. Yeah, I know. And and uh, a lot of these guys, I, I actually increased uh, my my admiration for these individuals, even more so than what I thought I had. Um, because of the extent at which they had this level of foresight about liberty. It seems that one of the things I find in common, and this is with great people of every possible time period of human history, is Mm -hmm. they themselves were not strangers with history. At some level, they stopped and they learned what came before. How did we get to here from there? Yes, yes. And, And obviously everyone's situation is different and unique. Um, we, we can't put a template of what someone back in 1776 dealt with and uh, apply it uh, case by case to today and, and the things that we're dealing with here. But we can follow the, uh, the spirit that they had to, to push that forward. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. Caleb Franz is my guest. He is the host of Profiles in Liberty. It's a new podcast. It's just about to debut. We'll be back to talk with him right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Caleb Franz. He is the host of Profiles in Liberty. It's a podcast which is going to launch. It's tomorrow, right, Caleb? Absolutely. Uh, July 1st, uh, Thursday, July 1st, so tomorrow. Okay, and this is this is on the We Are Libertarians podcast website. Uh, you guys have got some really nice, uh, I mean, you've got some great content, some very heavy hitters there, so you are in good company. Talk to me a little bit about this episode and what you're going to explore in the very first episode of Profiles in Liberty. 
So the the first episode of Profiles uh, in Liberty is uh, admittedly admittedly something that I, um, I you know I I, uh, I I was pretty excited about this one, and I I always knew that like whatever I did, this was going to be the first episode. It's going to be on Thomas Jefferson. Um, and he's, he's the, the first profile that, that we do. And, and specifically the specific story that I center around him, obviously in the first half of the, of the episode, um, I go through his, his general life to kind of give a general overview and, and keep, and get people up to speed. Um, but specifically I wanted to sort of set the record straight and 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 really give people an understanding of what his attitude uh toward uh slavery was because sort of the the common misconception or the common belief uh in modern society is that you know he wrote in the declaration of independence that all men are created equal well he didn't actually mean that he was only talking about white men because um, he, he owned slaves and he didn't, he didn't, uh, do anything to end slavery. Well, that is, is, I mean, there, there's a lot of, of subject matter when, when dealing with Thomas Jefferson and this specific issue of slavery. So I, I couldn't cover everything, but, but basing it off of that sort of, uh, fallacy that is, is just that it's a fallacy. It, it's, it's not correct. And when you look at his life and everything that he did, uh, from very early on in his career, which was pretty risky, actually, in, uh, in colonial Virginia, uh, of all places, uh, all the way to uh, one of the uh, final few acts of his presidency, um, he consistently took steps while he wasn't able to completely you know, abolish slavery outright or anything like that. And, and he kind of understood that it probably wouldn't happen in his lifetime. But he took the steps to build the foundation to where America would actually be able to, to overcome this great national sin. No, I, I think you're dead on. In fact, I've, I haven't read all of the writings of Thomas Jefferson, but I've read enough of them to, to draw some conclusions, one of which is, Right. I have seen nothing in his writings advocating the enslavement of human beings. You right. Know. He never did that. No. no. But I've seen a lot that advocated, you know, the value of freedom and the necessity to restrain government to, you know, prevent the consolidation of power and control over people, which I think I think you nailed it. He set the stage so that mistakes that were part of the world he was born into could be corrected because, you know, as I understand it, and you can comment on this maybe at that time consensus that slavery is wrong was not a widely held belief well yeah that's 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 more or less correct it was obviously um it was obviously trending in in a somewhat positive direction that's obviously how we got uh the 13th amendment <laughs> less than a century uh, after the signing of the declaration of independence um, so the the trajectory was in in a good position, but obviously there were many prejudices still very prevalent, uh, especially in the South. And, and Jefferson understood this. the The question that he struggled with was not whether or not slavery should end, but but how to go about it. Um, and if anyone has any issues with you know the way he he went about it. I, I won't say that that's right or wrong, but to suggest that he he like just didn't care about the issue whatsoever is is just factually incorrect, because not only 
uh, on the things that he was able to be successful with, say, the Declaration of Independence and, and the way that uh, he wrote that, um, it, it very clearly alludes to the fact that all men, in, including um, slaves, are, are meant to be free. Um, but if you look a, a little bit of a step further and go back into what his uh, proposed draft for, for, the, for his version of the Declaration of Independence uh, before it was edited, uh, before it was revised by Congress, um, slavery was not just one of the grievances that he listed as, uh, as why they're trying to separate from the king. It was the largest section in his original Declaration of Independence as to why this, why the king has been so oppressive, because, because he, he specifically, there are two, in, in his uh, original declaration, there are two uh, words that he capitalizes and emphasizes. And the first one is Christian, and the second word is men. And in the section, in the context, he says that the, the king is, is, I'm paraphrasing this right now, but the king is, is supposedly this great Christian, and he's emphasizing that word. Um, but yet he's the one who is, is, is basically given approval and, and preventing us from uh, putting a prohibition on the trade in which men, and he emphasizes the word men, are bought and sold. Uh, uh, from captivity in, in this foreign land. And those two words are, are really important. The first one being a, a little bit of, of irony, saying like, how can this great supposedly Christian king uh, pr- profess to be such whenever he's, he's, he's promoting slavery? The second one is pretty revolutionary to, to underline men in reference to African slaves is to admit and reaffirm their own humanity, which is a pretty revolutionary statement from anyone to make in the 18th century, let alone such a young, up-and-coming um, uh, statesman in Southern society, nonetheless, such as Thomas Jefferson. I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to hearing this. Now, we're, we're about two minutes away from, from hitting our break here, so let's take some time to tell people where they can find, where they can subscribe to your podcast. Well, uh, you, can, you can obviously subscribe to it uh, pretty much anywhere that you, you get your podcast, uh, on Apple Podcasts, um, on, on Spotify, I, I believe we're uh, on that as well. Um, Pretty much anywhere you can just type it in and um, so profiles and, uh, in liberty search for it. Profiles in liberty uh, is the name of the show. Uh, we're going to go through eight different signers this season of the Declaration of Independence. We've got John Adams on deck. We've got uh, Benjamin Franklin, which that that one was uh, an episode in particular that I I really uh, learned a lot about and, and and appreciated even more so, and and even took away a, a different perspective on my understanding of liberty by the end of it. Um, so I'm really excited to, to, uh, to provide that one. Um, and, and, and a bunch of other uh, individuals who you may or may not have heard of, but uh, are nonetheless really great champions uh, of the ideas of freedom and liberty. And again, the, the purpose behind this isn't just a let's put them up on a pedestal and, you know, make excited right. noises about this is about look at them, look at what they understood and what they did. And then perhaps we should ask ourselves, 
What can I do? What? How can yeah, I? How absolutely. can I emulate them? And 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 to give people uh, a hero to to look up to in in their own lives. You know, I I don't think that everyone is going to connect with every single individual uh, that I highlight on this program. But the hope and the goal is that someone out there will find one individual, at least one individual, uh, in this program that will really connect with them and and really uh, show them uh, some inspiration. Um, and and show them a way to where they can emulate um, their deeds and their actions in their own lives. Well, I think we live in a time where we need heroes. So let's get acquainted with the ones who came before. Let's do all we can to be heroes ourselves. Caleb, friends, thank you so much for being my guest today. I'll have a link to the uh, We Are Libertarians website so people can check out your podcast there as well. Thanks. Absolutely, Brian. It's been a pleasure. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And again, a quick shout out to our sponsors, MonticelloCollege.org. Man, I spent some time down there last weekend. What an incredible school, a true liberal arts education on a living campus. Check out their website. There's a link in the show notes. Also, pure-light.com, hslammo.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Very happy to have each of these sponsors. If you need their product or their service, please consider doing business with them. And if you don't, at least not at this moment, or you don't know somebody who does at the moment, maybe take a moment to drop them a line and just tell them, hey, I hear Brian saying kind things about you that make me want to do business with you. Just let them know that their message is reaching your ears. So, you ever heard someone describe taxation as a necessary evil? I believe I have probably uttered those words myself more than once or twice. But why don't we ever hear such words used to describe charity? Now, there's a thought. I guess it's probably because one of these things is voluntary, the other one is coerced. I've got an article here from Jean Vilbert. I'm assuming this is French. I, I, I assume. I hope not. Maybe it's because I was looking at uh, um, Les Miserables. But Jean Vilbert has an article here titled, What if Charity Replaced Taxation? This is published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org. And it's a question worth considering. Jean Vilbert says, Healthcare, education, among others, these goods have been considered so important that most current governments make a huge effort to provide them to people with inadequate incomes. Surely it would be crazy to deny how important these goods are. In a 2016 survey conducted by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, that's IUPUI, titled The 2016 U.S. Trust Study of High Net Worth Philanthropy, Individuals were asked to select the public policy issues that mattered most to them. The top two issues were precisely health care at 29% and education at 28%. However, is publication or public publicization through state activity the only or best way to provide those services to the poor? In other words, do we have alternatives? What about charity? Couldn't charity replace taxation? Well, it could. 
and with solid advantages. So there are four main reasons why this is the case. Moral, political, financial, and psychological. And so he starts with a moral plea. Are taxes so different from charity? Well, pulling out our wallet to donate money to a non-governmental organization responsible for offering health or education is different than opening our pockets for the revenue guys who threaten us. If you don't pay your taxes, you will end up in prison. So we have here a strong moral difference between a forced act and a voluntary act. Taxation is coercion, while charity is benevolence. In fact, rich countries that adhere to a welfare state model, and of course high taxation, are not the most generous ones. According to rankings from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, France has the highest tax-to-GDP ratio in the world, 46.2%, followed by Denmark at 46%, and Belgium at 44.6%. When we check the Charity Aid, Charities Aid Foundation World Giving Index, France is 72, 72nd rather, on the list of generosity. Denmark is 24th, and Belgium is 39th. Now, on the other hand, Ireland's tax-to-GDP ratio is 22.8%. The United States, 27.1%. Ireland is 5th on the Charities Aid Foundation World Giving Index, and the U.S. is 4th. Huh, interesting, isn't it? Next, he says we can wield a political plea. There is enormous risk in allowing the expansion of the state's forces, even when we're talking about areas as important as health care and education. Public education opens a highway to the imposition of cultural hegemony through indoctrination. If education is provided by several independent entities sponsored by charity, it's harder to control it. But when education is centralized in the state's hands, afforded by taxes, it easily becomes an ideological apparatus, making the dreams of Antonio Gramsci and Louis Althusser come true. By the way, Antonio Gramsci is the father of modern political correctness or cultural Marxism. Once public forces take the responsibility for providing health care, life is made subject to explicit calculations of state power, featuring what Michel Foucault and Giorgio Amogen called biopower or biopolitics. Life itself becomes an object of concern for power. As a result, individuals see the demise of any boundaries against public intervention in their lives. The government gains power to tell us what to eat and drink, how to ride or drive, what we can or not do, and more. Which brings us to a financial plea. Here we will set up an audacious premise. Private entities sponsored by charity are normally more effective. They're cheaper or have a better cost-benefit profile than public entities. In other words, they can do the same with fewer resources. For example, in Brazil, we have public and private universities. Research shows that a student in a Brazilian private university costs 60% less than in a public university. Maybe poor countries could do more with less money if they invested in the private sector and thought about how to promote charity instead of relying only on public services and taxation. Perhaps if the government demanded less coercively, people would give more voluntarily. The 2016 IUPUI survey asked wealthy people what they would do if taxes were eliminated. What do you think they said? 17% said they would increase the amount they give to charity. 6% said they would dramatically increase. 72% would stay the same, and just 5% would reduce the contribution. 
By the way, in 2013, the figures were even more in favor of charity. 47% would stay the same, 30, 31% would increase, 18% would dramatically increase. So considering this, rich people would give more money and we can do more with less investing that money donated in the private sector. Why can't we believe charity is a financially feasible alternative? As a famous politician slogan goes, yes, we can. Last but not least, here is a psychological plea. Several social psychologists, among them Elizabeth Dunn, argue that people who give money to charity are happier than those who don't. And we can see the benefits of giving spike when people feel a real sense of connection to those they are helping and can easily envision the difference they're making in those individuals' lives. For example, UNICEF is such a big, broad charity. Doesn't it resemble the state? That it can be hard to realize how our small donation will make a difference. What's the matter? Well, the emotional return on investment is eliminated when people give money to UNICEF. Imagine what happens when we give money to the state. This suggests that just giving money to a worthwhile charity or to Leviathan isn't enough. We need to be able to envision exactly how our money is going to make a difference. The IUPUI survey confirms this statement. Discussing the motivations for charitable giving, donors provided three main reasons. Number one, they believed in the mission of the organization. Number two, they believed their gift could make a difference. Number three, for personal satisfaction, enjoyment, or fulfillment. Furthermore, the study showed that people have the most confidence in individuals and nonprofit organizations to solve societal or global problems. Sizable proportions of interviewers held hardly any confidence in the legislative branch, the executive branch, and state or local governments. One could say we need to find a way to show the results of tax collection and make the state better at providing public services in a cost-benefit analysis. Well, even with these improvements, what about the moral plea? Will we keep acting by force? And if one thinks people pay taxes voluntarily, what about the political plea? Will we keep making room for interventionism? Even though tax defenders refuse to admit it, these questions remain without satisfactory answers. Jean Vilbert says, at the end of the day, we used to think about helping others as something everybody must do, and it is. But while we think about that as a legal obligation materialized into taxes, we will remain unable to create meaningful connections between individuals and therefore unable to deal with challenges that today seem to be overwhelming, such as how to provide health care and education in poor countries. He says, if we want to do more and better, we must stop seeing the state and taxation as the only means of doing things in society. You know what what shocks a lot of people is the realization that uh, for the first hundred plus years of America's existence, in other words, from 1789 up until uh, roughly 1913, there was no income tax. Yeah, I understand Lincoln imposed one briefly during the war between the states, but it was uh, deep sixed and and chucked to or kicked to the curb rather by the Supreme Court. And as soon as those hostilities ended, how on earth did this continent get tamed? How did a nation grow without income tax? Jacob Hornberger, by the way, has some great thoughts on this. 
We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are one of our sponsors. And look, if you are moving to the Intermountain West, particularly if you are moving to Utah, this is the lender you need to have in your corner because the real estate market right now is simply on fire. It's it's the craziest thing. I, I don't think anybody ever, ever saw this coming. I saw the median price of a home in Utah is up over $400,000 now. That's the average sale price. But once you find the home that you want, man, you got to be quick or somebody's going to buy it right out from under you. This is why the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage needs to be on your side because time is of the essence. So whether you need a VA loan or a traditional loan, whether you want a reverse mortgage, maybe you're just looking to refinance your existing home loan. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George is the one you can trust. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly understands everything that needs to happen. So you should get in touch with them. You can call 435-703-4522. You can visit them in St. George at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and 2. Also want to mention Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So, I don't get too conspiratorial too often. I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist when I say this, but... I believe it is a true statement that our federal government couldn't get away with its blatant usurpation of power without the help of the Federal Reserve. I'm not asking you to take my word for it, but, you know, the amount of spending that takes place requires something akin to what I believe G. Ed Griffin referred to as the magical money machine. And Mike Meharry of the Tenth Amendment Center has uh, compiled a very compelling explanation of how the National Bank destroyed the limits of the Constitution. Thought I would share that with you. Mike Meharry says the Federal Reserve is the engine that drives the biggest, most powerful government in the history of the world. He says we can trace the origins of this modern central bank back to the creation of the first bank of the United States before ratification of the Bill of Rights. Even then, it was built on dubious constitutional justifications. But he also reminds us it wasn't created without a fight. The arguments advanced by the bank's opponents provide a great deal of insight into the original understanding of the Constitution and the American system as it was conceived. And this is an important subject to explore because central banking has both constitutional and policy ramifications. Monetary policy run through the Fed enables much of the U.S. government's excessive borrowing and spending. If the federal government had to rely on tax receipts and borrowing that it could actually repay to fund all of its unconstitutional wars, foreign aid, and domestic spending, it would be dead in the water. The ability to raise revenue through taxation and free market borrowing would naturally limit the government. But with the Fed backstopping the borrowing by monetizing the debt... Well, that means there were virtually no limits on its spending. Given the enormous role the Fed plays in the American system of government, you would expect to find it explicitly authorized by the Constitution. 
it is not. So how did we get to this point? Mike Meharry says, well, the Federal Reserve wasn't created until 1913. Its foundation was laid far earlier in the earliest days of the Republic. Congress chartered the first bank of the United States on February 25th, 1791. A national bank was the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton, and its rationale wasn't much different from those who later came up with the Federal Reserve. Hamilton thought a central bank was necessary to stabilize and improve the fledgling nation's credit and to better manage the financial business of the United States government. Now, he also knew that his vision of a powerful national government was impossible without a central bank to backstop government borrowing. But what about the Constitution? How did Hamilton's bank fit into the constitutional framework ratified just a couple of years earlier? Well, simply put, it didn't. In order to justify his bank, Hamilton performed perhaps the greatest political flip-flop in American history. During the ratification debates, Hamilton promised that the federal government would remain limited to its explicitly delegated powers. But when it came time to charter his bank... Hamilton suddenly discovered implied powers in the text of the Constitution. They're buried in there somewhere. Now, if supporters had taken this position during the ratification process, the states would have rejected the Constitution outright. Hamilton's bank plan sparked intense debate. It wasn't merely an argument about the need for a bank or the functions it should perform. The opposition to the National Bank, led by Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, was far more fundamental and based on constitutional grounds. The arguments against the bank fit more closely with the vision laid out by supporters of the Constitution during the ratification debates. But ultimately, Hamilton won the day. The chartering of the First Bank of the United States not only set the precedent for government-controlled central banking that ultimately gave us the Federal Reserve, it also sent the United States down the path to ever-growing central power. As Jefferson put it, to take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specifically drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power, no longer susceptible of any definition. Hamilton's arguments for the bank became the basis for loose constitutional construction that flipped the U.S. government on its head. Instead of a federal government exercising powers few and defined, Hamiltonian constitutionalism gave us a central government with powers numerous and indefinite. Now, Mike Meharry has a new ebook out called The National Bank Versus the Constitution. In it, he digs deep into the arguments presented by Hamilton and the constitutional counter-arguments offered by Madison, Jefferson, and other opponents of the bank, such as Edmund Randolph. It also offers a concise overview of the history of the Federal Reserve and the role of central banking in the United States. Now, Mike Meharry says, look, this story is about more than central banking. This is really a battle for the heart and soul of America's constitutional system. If you understand the constitutional arguments against the first bank of the United States, he says you will have a solid grasp on the constitutional arguments against much of the unconstitutional monster state we live under today. Now, there are links within this article that uh, you can pick up uh, the National Bank versus the Constitution as an ebook if you are a Tenth Amendment Center member. He has links both to get the book as well as to join the Tenth Amendment Center. And he says print and ebook versions for the general public will be coming in the near future.
Now, I look, I understand people sometimes their eyes glaze over when subjects like, you know, fractional reserve banking or monetary policy come up for discussion. I've been there myself. And there's times where it's like, oh, boy, this is going to get deep really fast because sometimes it, it just takes a turn into areas that are not particularly well understood. But if you can at least understand this, and, and, and I say this with all the sincerity of someone who does not want to be, you know, fingered as well, you're just wearing your tinfoil hat too tight. When Congress signed the 1913 Federal Reserve Act, or when they passed it, and when, when President Woodrow Wilson signed it into law, a huge amount of our sovereignty, our national sovereignty, was handed over to a banking cartel. If you've ever heard of the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, it's a brilliant piece of work from G. Ed Griffin, and it describes how the Federal Reserve Act was put into to play, how the, the income tax, the 16th Amendment, was also con- conceived and written at that same time. And the funny thing about it is this was, this was done under the guise of, you know why we need a Federal Reserve, why we need central banking <clears throat> it was to make sure those fat cats in finance don't get the upper hand over the American people. But as G. Ed Griffin points out, the fat cats, the, the, the pillars of American finance, the, the banking giants of the, of the day, were the very ones meeting at Jekyll Island, Georgia, to write that Federal Reserve Act. Yeah. This was done at a time when, you know, this kind of knowledge was not readily available. The Internet didn't exist. There were newspapers. Telephones were still kind of a new thing. But the bottom line is they they sat down and they wrote up a plan which greatly benefited them. And I don't have time to get into it to, at the moment. But if you if you can simply understand the Federal Reserve is not strictly speaking, a branch of the federal government. Yes, it works hand-in-hand with the federal government. It has some oversight on the part of the federal government, but it's not federal. It does not have reserves in terms of something of tangible value backing the money it creates. It's a bank cartel and a well-connected one. And because it does what it does, our government can borrow virtually unlimited amounts of money. I mean, for crying out loud, well, we've hit our debt ceiling. What will we do? Stop spending? No, that's not right. Let's raise that debt ceiling. Why even have one if you're just going to do that? Check out the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.